25. Why Life, by Morrison English Men of Letters. Criticism, Essays, by Beryl. In Collected Essays and Res Judicity, by Stephen. In Studies of a Biographer, by Robertson. In Pioneer Humanists, by Frederick Harrison. In Ruskin and Other Literary Estimates, by Badgett. In Literary Studies, by St. Puth. In English Portraits. See also Anton's Masters in History. Sheridan. Texts, Speeches. Five Balls. London. 1816. Plays. Edited by W.F. Ray London. 1902. The Same. Edited by R. Dirks. In Camelot Series. Major Dramas. In Athenaeum Press. Plays also in Morley's Universal Library. Macmillan's English Classics. Etc. Life. By Ray. By M. Oliphant English Men of Letters. By L. Sanders Great Writers. Gray. Texts. Works. Edited by Goss Macmillan. Poems. In Routledge's Pocket Library. Chando's Classics. Etc. Selections. In Athenaeum Press. Etc. Letters. Edited by D.C. Tovey Bond. Life. By Goss English Men of Letters. Criticism. Essays. By Lowell. In Latest Literary Essays. By Anne Arnold. In Essays in Criticism. By L. Stephen. In Hours in a Library. By A. Dobson. In 18th Century Vignettes. Goldsmith. Texts. Edited by Masson. Globe Edition. Works. Edited by Aiken and Tuckerman Crowell. The same. Edited by A. Dobson Dent. Morley's Universal Library. Arbor's The Goldsmith Anthology Froud. See also selections for reading. Above. Life. By Washington Irving. By A. Dobson Great Writer Series. By Black English Men of Letters. By J. Forster. By Pryor. Criticism. Essays. By Macaulay. By Thackeray. By D. Quincy. By A. Dobson. In Miscellanies. Cooper. Texts. Works. Globe and Aldine Editions. Also in Chando's Classics. Selections. In Athenism Press. Canterbury Poets. Etc. The Correspondence of William Cooper. Edited by T. Wright. Four Balls. Dodd. Mead and Company. Life. By Goldwyn Smith English Men of Letters. By Wright. By Southey. Criticism. Essays. By L. Stephen. By Badgett. By St. Puth. By Beryl. By Stopford Brook. By A. Dobson. See above. See also Woodbury's Makers of Literature. Burns. Texts. Works. Cambridge Poets Edition containing Henley's Study of Burns. Globe and Aldine Editions. Clarendon Press. Canterbury Poets. Etc. Selections. In Athenaeum Press. Etc. Letters. In Camelot Series. Life. By Cunningham. By Henley. By Setun. By Blackie Great Writers. By Sharp English Men of Letters. Criticism. Essays. By Carlyle. By R. L. Stevenson. In Familiar Studies. By Hazlitt. In Lectures on the English Poets. By Stopford Brook. In Theology in the English Poets. By J. Forster. In Great Teachers. Blake. Texts. Poems. Aldine Edition. Also in Canterbury Poets. Complete Works. Edited by Ellis and Yates London. 1893. Selections. Edited by W. B. Yates. In the Muses Library Dutton. Letters. With Life by F. Tatham. Edited by A. G. B. Russell Scribner's. 1896. Life. By Gilchrist. My Story. By Simons. Criticism. Swinburne's William Blake. A Critical Study. Ellis's The Rail Blake McClure. 1907. Elizabeth Carey's The Art of William Blake Moffat. Yard and Company. 1907. Essay. By A. C. Benson. In Essays. Thompson. Texts. Works. Aldine Edition. The Seasons. And Castle of Indolence. In Clarendon Press. Etc. Life. By Bain. 
by G.B. Macaulay Englishman of Letters, S.A. by Hazlitt, in Lectures on the English Poets, Collins, Works, edited by Brunson, in Athenaeum Press, also in Aldine Edition, Life, by Johnson, in Lives of the Poets, S.A. by Swinburne, in Miscellanies, see also Beers's English Romanticism in the 18th Century, Crab, Works, with memoir by his son, G. Crab, Eight Vols, London, 1834-1835, Poems, edited by A.W. Award, Three Vols, in Cambridge English Classics Cambridge, 1905, Selections, in Temple Classics, Canterbury Poets, etc. Life, by Kebble Great Writers, by Amor English Men of Letters, Essays, by L. Stephen, in Hours in a Library, by Woodbury, in Makers of Literature, by Saintsbury, in Essays in English Literature, by Courthope, in Ward's English Poets, by Edward Fitzgerald, in Miscellanies, by Hazlitt, in Spirit of the Age, Macpherson, Texts, Ocean, in Canterbury Poets, Poems, translated by Macpherson, edited by Todd London, 1888, Life and Letters, edited by Saunders London, 1894, Criticism, J.S. Smart's James Macpherson Nutt, 1905, see also Beers's English Romanticism, for relation of Macpherson's work to the original Ocean, see Dean of Lismore's book, edited by McLaughlin Edinburgh, 1862, also Poems of Ocean, translated by Clerk Edinburgh, 1870, Chatterton, Works, edited by Skeet London, 1875, Poems, in Canterbury Poets, Life, by Russell, by Wilson, Masson's Chatterton, A Biography, Criticism, C. Russell's Thomas Chatterton Moffat, Yard and Company, Essays, by Watts Dunton, in Ward's English Poets, by Masson, in Essays Biographical and Critical, see also Beers's English Romanticism, Percy, Relics, edited by Wheatley London, 1891, the same, in Every Man's Library, Chando's Classics, etc. Essay, by J.W. Hales, Revival of Ballad Poetry, in Folio Literaria, see also Beers's English Romanticism, etc. Special Works, above, Defoe, Texts, Romances and Narratives, edited by Eight Condent, Poems and Pamphlets, in Arbor's English Garner, Volume 8, School Editions of Robinson Crusoe, and Journal of the Plague and Company, etc., Captain Singleton, and Memoirs of a Cavalier, in Every Man's Library, Early Writings, in Carisbrook Library Routledge, Life, by W. Lee, by Mental English Men of Letters, by Wright, also in Westminster Biography Small, Maynard, S.A., by L. Stephen, in Hours in a Library, Richardson, Works, edited by L. Stephen London, 1883, edited by Phillips, with Life New York, 1901, Correspondence, edited by A. Barbadould, Six Balls, London, 1804, Life, by Thompson, by A. Dobson, Essays, by L. Stephen, in Hours in a Library, by A. Dobson, in 18th Century Vignettes, Fielding, Works, Temple Edition, edited by Saints Barbary Dent, Selected Essays, in Athenaeum Press, Journal of a Voyage to Lisbon, in Castle's National Library, Life, by Dobson English Men of Letters, Lawrence's Life and Times of Fielding, Essays, by Lowell, by Thackeray, by L. Stephen, by A. Dobson C. Above, by G. B. Smith, in Poets and Novelists, Smollett, Works, edited by Saints Barbary London, 1895, Works, edited by Henley Scribner, 
Life, by Hannah Great Writers, by Smeaton, by Chambers, Essays, by Thackeray, by Henley, by Dobson, in 18th century vignettes, Stern, Works, edited by Saints Barbary Dent, Tristram Shandy, and A Sentimental Journey, in Temple Classics, Morley's Universal Library, etc. Life, by Fitzgerald, by Trail Englishmen of Letters, Life and Times, by W.L. Cross Macmillan, Essays, by Thackeray, by Badgett, in Literary Studies, Horace Walpole, Texts, Castle of Otranto, in King's Classics, Castle's National Library, etc. Letters, edited by C.D. Younga, Morley's Walpole, in Twelve English Statesmen Macmillan, Essay, by L. Stephen, in Hours in a Library, see also Beers's English Romanticism, Francis Bernie Madame Bloody, Texts, Edelina, in Temple Classics, Two Vols, Macmillan, Diary and Letters, edited by S.C. Rulesey, Celia's Fanny Bernie and Her Friends, Essay, by Macaulay, Suggestive Questions, 1. Describe briefly the social development of the 18th century. What effect did this have on literature? What accounts for the prevalence of prose? What influence did the first newspapers exert on life and literature? How do the readers of this age compare with those of the age of Elizabeth? 2. How do you explain the fact that satire was largely used in both prose and poetry? Name the principal satires of the age. What is the chief object of satire? Of literature? How do the two objects conflict? 3. What is the meaning of the term, classicism, as applied to the literature of this age? Did the classicism of Johnson, for instance, have any relation to classic literature in its true sense? Why is this period called the Augustan Age? Why was Shakespeare not regarded by this age as a classical writer? 4. Pope. In what respect is Pope a unique writer? Tell briefly the story of his life. What are his principal works? How does he reflect the critical spirit of his age? What are the chief characteristics of his poetry? What do you find to copy in his style? What is lacking in his poetry? Compare his subjects with those of Burns of Tennyson or Milton. For instance, how would Chaucer or Burns tell the story of the rape of the luck? What similarity do you find between Pope's poetry and Addison's prose? 5. Swift. What is the general character of Swift's work? Name his chief satires. What is there to copy in his style? Does he ever strive for ornament or effect in writing? Compares with Gulliver's travels with Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. In style, purpose of writing, and interest. What resemblances do you find in these two contemporary writers? Can you explain the continued popularity of Gulliver's travels? 6. Addison and Steele. What great work did Addison and Steele do for literature? Make a brief comparison between these two men, having in mind their purpose humor, knowledge of life, and human sympathy, as shown, for instance, in number 112 and number 2 of the Spectator Essays, compare their humor with that of Swift, how is their work a preparation for the novel, 7, Johnson, for what is Dr. Johnson famous in literature, can you explain his great influence, compare his style with that of Swift or Defoe, what are the remarkable elements in Boswell's Life of Johnson, Write a description of an imaginary meeting of Johnson, Goldsmith, and Boswell in a coffee house. 8. Burke. For what is Burke remarkable? What great objects influenced him in the three periods of his life? Why has he been called a romantic poet who speaks in prose? Compare his use of imagery with that of other writers of the period. What is there to copy and what is there to avoid in his style? 
Can you trace the influence of Burke's American speeches on later English politics? What similarities do you find between Burke and Milton, as revealed in their prose works? 9. Gibbon. For what is Gibbon worthy to be remembered? Why does he mark an epoch in historical writing? What is meant by the scientific method of writing history? Compare Gibbon's style with that of Johnson. Contrast it with that of Swift, and also with that of some modern historian, Parkman, for example. 10. What is meant by the term, Romanticism? What are its chief characteristics? How does it differ from Classicism? Illustrate the meaning from the work of Gray, Cooper, or Burns. Can you explain the prevalence of melancholy in Romanticism? 11. Gray. What are the chief works of Gray? Can you explain the continued popularity of his, Elegy? What romantic elements are found in his poetry? What resemblances and what differences do you find in the works of Gray and of Goldsmith? 12. Goldsmith. Tell the story of Goldsmith's life. What are his chief works? Show from the deserted village the romantic and the so-called classic elements in his work. What great work did he do for the early novel? In the Vicar of Wakefield? Can you explain the popularity of She Stoops to Conquer? Name some of Goldsmith's characters who have found a permanent place in our literature. What personal reminiscences have you noted in The Traveler, The Deserted Village, and She Stoops to Conquer? 13. Cooper. Describe Cooper's The Task. How does it show the romantic spirit? Give passages from John Milton to illustrate Cooper's humor. 14. Burns. Tell the story of Burns's life. Someone has said, the measure of a man's sin is the difference between what he is and what he might be. Comment upon this, with reference to Burns. What is the general character of his poetry? Why is he called the poet of common men? What subjects does he choose for his poetry? Compare him, in this respect, with Pope. What elements in the poet's character are revealed in such poems as, To a Mouse, and, To a Mountain Daisy? How do Burns and Gray regard nature? What poems show his sympathy with the French Revolution, and with democracy? Read, The Cotter's Saturday Night, and explain its enduring interest. Can you explain the secret of Burns's great popularity? 15. Blake. What are the characteristics of Blake's poetry? Can you explain why Blake, though the greatest poetic genius of the age, is so little appreciated? 16. Percy. In what respect did Percy's relics influence the Romantic movement? What are the defects in his collection of ballads? Can you explain why such a crude poem as Chevy Chase should be popular with an age that delighted in Pope's essay on man? 17. McPherson. What is meant by McPherson's Ocean? Can you account for the remarkable success of the Oceanic forgeries? 18. Chatterton. Tell the story of Chatterton and the Rowley poems. Read Chatterton's Bristol Tragedy, and compare it, in style and interest, with the old ballads, like The Battle of Otterburn, or The Hunting of the Cheviot, all in Manly's English poetry. 19. The First Novelists. What is meant by the modern novel? How does it differ from the early romance and from the adventure story? What are some of the precursors of the novel? What was the purpose of stories modeled after Don Quixote? What is the significance of Pamela? What elements did Fielding add to the novel? What good work did Goldsmith's Vicar of Wakefield accomplish? Compare Goldsmith, in this respect, with Steele and Addison. Chronology End of 17th and the 18th Century History Literature 1689 William and Mary 1683-1719, Defoe's Early Writings Bill of Rights, Toleration Act 1695, 
Press made free 1700, beginning of London Club 1702, and D 1714 War of Spanish Succession 1702, First Daily Newspaper 1704, Battle of Blenheim 1704, Addison's The Campaign Swift's Tale of the Tub 1707, Union of England and Scotland 1709, The Taylor Johnson Born D 1784 1710 1713, Swift in London, Journal to Stella 1711, the Spectator 1712, Pope's Rate of the Lock 1714, George I.D. 1727 1719, Robinson Crusoe 1721, Cabinet Government, Walpole First Prime Minister 1726, Gulliver's Travels 1726-1730, Thompson's The Seasons 1727, George I.I.D. 1760-1730-1734, Essay on Man 1738, Rise of Methodism 1740, Richardson's Pamela 1740, War of Austrian Succession 1742, Fielding's Joseph Andrews 1746, Jacobite Rebellion 1749, Fielding's Tom Jones 1750-1752, Johnson's The Rambler 1750-1757, Conquest of India 1751, Gray's Elegy 1755, Johnson's Dictionary 1756, War with France 1759, Wolfe at Quebec 1760, George I.I.I.D. 1820 1760 1767, Stearns Tristram Shandy 1764, Johnson's Literary Club 1765, Stamp Act 1765, Percy's Relics 1766, Goldsmith's Vicar of Wakefield 1770, Goldsmith's Deserted Village 1771, Beginning of Great Newspapers 1773, Boston Tea Party 1774, Howard's Prison Reforms 1774-1775, Burke's American Speeches 1775, American Revolution 1776-1788, Gibbons Rome 1776, Declaration of Independence 1779, Cooper's Only Hymn 1779-81, Johnson's Lives of the Poets 1783, Treaty of Paris 1783, Blake's Poetical Sketches 1785, Cooper's The Task The London Times 1786, Trial of War in Hastings 1786, Burns's First Poems The Kilmarnock Burns Burke's War in Hastings 1789-1799, French Revolution 1790, Burke's French Revolution 1791, Boswell's Life of Johnson 1793, War with France Chapter X The Age of Romanticism 1800-1850 The second creative period of English literature The first half of the 19th century records the triumph of romanticism in literature and of democracy in government, and the two movements are so closely associated, in so many nations and in so many periods of history, that one must wonder if there be not some relation of cause and effect between them. Just as we understand the tremendous energizing influence of Puritanism in the matter of English liberty by remembering that the common people had begun to read, and that their book was the Bible, so we may understand this age of popular government by remembering that the chief subject of romantic literature was the essential nobleness of common men and the value of the individual. As we read now that brief portion of history which lies between the Declaration of Independence 1776 and the English Reform Bill of 1832. We are in the presence of such mighty political upheavals that, the age of revolution, is the only name by which we can adequately characterize it. Its great historic movements become intelligible only when we read what was written in this period, 
for the French Revolution and the American Commonwealth, as well as the establishment of a true democracy in England by the Reform Bill, were the inevitable results of ideas which literature had spread rapidly through the civilized world. Liberty is fundamentally an ideal, and that ideal beautiful, inspiring, compelling, as a love banner in the wine was kept steadily before men's minds by a multitude of books and pamphlets as far apart as Burns's poems and Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, already early by the common people, all proclaiming the dignity of common life, and all uttering the same passionate cry against every form of class or caste oppression. First the dream, the ideal in some human soul, then the written word which proclaims it, and impresses other minds with its truth and beauty, then the united and determined effort of men to make the dream a reality, that seems to be a fair estimate of the part that literature plays, even in our political progress, historical summary, the period we are considering begins in the latter half of the reign of George III and ends with the accession of Victoria in 1837, when on a foggy morning in November, 1783, King George entered the House of Lords and in a trembling voice recognized the independence of the United States of America. He unconsciously proclaimed the triumph of that free government by free men which had been the ideal of English literature for more than a thousand years, though it was not till 1832, when the Reform Bill became the law of the land, that England herself learned the lesson taught her by America, and became the democracy of which her writers had always dreamed. The half-century between these two events is one of great turmoil, yet of steady advance in every department of English life. The storm center of the political unrest was the French Revolution, that frightful uprising which proclaimed the natural rights of man and the abolition of class distinctions. Its effect on the whole civilized world is beyond computation. Patriotic clubs and societies multiplied in England, all asserting the doctrine of liberty, equality, fraternity. The watchwords of the revolution, Young England, led by Pitt the Younger, hailed the new French Republic and offered it friendship, Old England, which pardons no revolutions but her own, looked with horror on the turmoil in France and, misled by Burke and the nobles of the realm, forced the two nations into a war. Even Pitt saw a blessing in this at first, because the sudden zeal for fighting a foreign nation which by some horrible perversion is generally called patriotism might turn men's thoughts from their own to their neighbors' affairs, and so prevent a threatened revolution at home. The causes of this threatened revolution were not political but economic. By her invention in steel and machinery, and by her monopoly of the carrying trade, England had become the workshop of the world. Her wealth had increased beyond her wildest dreams, but the unequal distribution of that wealth was a spectacle to make angels weep. The invention of machinery at first threw thousands of skilled hand workers out of employment, in order to protect a few agriculturists. Heavy duties were imposed on corn and wheat, and bread rose to famine prices just when laboring men had the least money to pay for it. There followed a curious spectacle, while England increased in wealth and spent vast sums to support her army and subsidize her allies in Europe, and while nobles, landowners, manufacturers, and merchants lived in increasing luxury, a multitude of skilled laborers were clamoring for work. Fathers sent their wives and little children into the mines and factories, where sixteen hours labor would hardly pay for the daily bread, and in every large city were riotous mobs made up chiefly of hungry men and women. It was this unbearable economic condition and not any political theory, as Burke supposed, which occasioned the danger of another English revolution. It is only when we remember these conditions that we can understand two books, 
Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, which can hardly be considered as literature, but which exercised an enormous influence in England. Smith was a Scottish thinker, who wrote to uphold the doctrine that labor is the only source of a nation's wealth, and that any attempt to force labor into unnatural channels, or to prevent it by protective duties from freely obtaining the raw materials for its industry, is unjust and destructive. Payne was a curious combination of Jekyll and Hyde, shallow and untrustworthy personally, but with a passionate devotion to popular liberty. His Rights of Man published in London in 1791, was like one of Burns's lyric outcries against institutions which oppressed humanity, coming so soon after the destruction of the Bastille. It added fuel to the flames kindled in England by the French Revolution. The author was driven out of the country on the curious ground that he endangered the English constitution, but not until his book had gained a wide sale and influence. All these dangers, real and imaginary, passed away when England turned from the affairs of France to remedy her own economic conditions. The long continental war came to an end with Napoleon's overthrow at Waterloo, in 1815, and England, having gained enormously in prestige abroad, now turned to the work of reform at home the destruction of the African slave trade, the mitigation of horribly unjust laws, which included poor debtors and petty criminals in the same class, the prevention of child labor, the freedom of the press, the extension of manhood suffrage, the abolition of restrictions against Catholics in Parliament, the establishment of hundreds of popular schools, under the leadership of Andrew Bell and Joseph Lancaster. These are but a few of the reforms which mark the progress of civilization in a single half-century. When England, in 1833, proclaimed the emancipation of all slaves in all her colonies. She unconsciously proclaimed her final emancipation from barbarism. Literary characteristics of the age. It is intensely interesting to note how literature at first reflected the political turmoil of the age, and then, when the turmoil was over and England began her mighty work of reform, how literature suddenly developed a new creative spirit, which shows itself in the poetry of Wordsworth. Coleridge, Byron, Shelley, Keats, and in the prose of Scott, Jane Austen, Lamb, and De Quincey, a wonderful group of writers, whose patriotic enthusiasm suggests the Elizabethan days, and whose genius has caused their age to be known as the second creative period of our literature. Thus in the early days, when old institutions seem crumbling with the Bastille, Coleridge and Southey formed their youthful scheme of a pentisocracy on the banks of the Susquehanna an ideal commonwealth, in which the principles of Moore's utopia should be put in practice, even Wordsworth, fired with political enthusiasm, could write, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven, the essence of romanticism was, it must be remembered, that literature must reflect all that is spontaneous and unaffected in nature and in man, and be free to follow its own fancy in its own way. We have already noted this characteristic in the work of the Elizabethan dramatists, who followed their own genius in opposition to all the laws of the critics. In Coleridge we see this independence expressed in Kubla Khan and The Ancient Mariner, to dream pictures, one of the populous Orient, the other of the lonely sea. In Wordsworth this literary independence led him inward to the heart of common things, following his own instinct, as Shakespeare does, he too finds tongues in trees books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything, and so, more than any other writer of the age, he invests the common life of nature, and the souls of common men and women, 
with glorious significance. These two poets, Coleridge and Wordsworth, best represent the romantic genius of the age in which they lived, though Scott had a greater literary reputation, and Byron and Shelley had larger audiences. The second characteristic of this age is that it is emphatically an age of poetry. The previous century, with its practical outlook on life, was largely one of prose, but now, as in the Elizabethan age, the young enthusiasts turned as naturally to poetry as a happy man to singing. The glory of the age is in the poetry of Scott, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, Shelley, Keats, Moore, and Southey, of its prose works. Those of Scott alone have attained a very wide reading, though the essays of Charles Lamb and the novels of Jane Austen have slowly won for their authors a secure place in the history of our literature. Coleridge and Southey who with Wordsworth form the trio of so-called late poets wrote far more prose than poetry, and Southey's prose is much better than his verse. It was characteristic of the spirit of this age, so different from our own, that Southey could say that, in order to earn money, he wrote in verse what would otherwise have been better written in prose. It was during this period that woman assumed, for the first time, an important place in our literature. Probably the chief reason for this interesting phenomenon lies in the fact that woman was for the first time given some slight chance of education, of entering into the intellectual life of the race, and as is always the case when woman is given anything like a fair opportunity she responded magnificently. A secondary reason may be found in the nature of the age itself, which was intensely emotional. The French Revolution stirred all Europe to its depths, and during the following half-century every great movement in literature, as in politics and religion, was characterized by strong emotion, which is all the more noticeable by contrast with the cold, formal, satiric spirit of the early 18th century, as woman is naturally more emotional than man. It may well be that the spirit of this emotional age attracted her, and gave her the opportunity to express herself in literature, as all strong emotions tend to extremes. The age produced a new type of novel which seems rather hysterical now, but which in its own day delighted multitudes of readers whose nerves were somewhat excited, and who reveled in bogey stories of supernatural terror. Mrs. N. Radcliffe 1764-1823 was one of the most successful writers of this school of exaggerated romance. Her novels, with their azurite heroines, haunted castles, trapdoors, bandits, abductions, rescues in the nick of time, and a general medley of overwrought joys and horrors, were immensely popular, not only with the crowd of novel readers, but also with men of unquestioned literary genius, like Scott and Byron. In marked contrast to these extravagant stories is the enduring work of Jane Austen, with her charming descriptions of everyday life, and of Maria Edgeworth, whose wonderful pictures of Irish life suggested to Walter Scott the idea of writing his Scottish romances, to other women who attained a more or less lasting fame were Hannah Moore, poet, dramatist, and novelist, and Jane Porter, whose Scottish Chiefs and Thaddeus of Warsaw are still in demand in our libraries. Beside these were Fanny Burney, Madame Blotty and several other writers whose works, in the early part of the 19th century, raised woman to the high place in literature which she has ever since maintained. In this age literary criticism became firmly established by the appearance of such magazines as the Edinburgh Review 1802, the Quarterly Review 1808, Blackwood's Magazine 1817, the Westminster Review 1824, the Spectator 1828 the Athenaeum 1828, 
and Fraser's Magazine 1830. These magazines, edited by such men as Francis Jeffrey, John Wilson who is known to us as Christopher North, and John Gibson Lockhart, who gave us the life of Scott, exercised an immense influence on all subsequent literature. At first their criticisms were largely destructive, as when Jeffrey hammered Scott, Wordsworth, and Byron most unmercifully, and Lockhart could find no good in either Keats or Tennyson, but with added wisdom, criticism assumed its true function of construction, and when these magazines began to seek and to publish the works of unknown writers, like Hazlitt, Lamb, and Lee Hunt, they discovered the chief mission of the modern magazine, which is to give every writer of ability the opportunity to make his work known to the world. I the poets of romanticism William Wordsworth 1770-1850 It was in 1797 that the new romantic movement in our literature assumed definite form. Word.